Today's scripture is John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish. 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it. It was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised, raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This is said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I think that was me. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here, and apparently I caused some feedback issues when I'm walking up. Um, it's funny about the Flag, Flag Sun thing, the combined youth group. I was preaching at Flagstaff uh, about a month and a half, two months ago, and I mentioned that, and I thought it was Flag Son because we're not Tucson, or Tucson, right? And they said it was Flag Sun, and I said, I think it should be two staff. I think we should be first. <laughs> Why do we have to be second, right? Um, In his masterpiece work of fiction, Victor Hugo, uh, the book Les Miserables, uh, has a character named Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean is a man who seems to be tortured by guilt, by shame. Uh, he, his story opens with him in prison. He's been imprisoned in a hard labor camp for 19 years for the crime of stealing bread for a child who's starving. He gets out of prison, and he's put on parole. 
and quickly, rather than uh, taking his second chance and holding on to it, he flees. He runs away, maybe in fear. He ends up at the home of a bishop, uh, a man of faith, a man who loves Jesus. And the, the bishop shows him dignity that he hasn't seen. He's been called by a number, not a name. The bishop starts to give him food and clothing. Uh, he gives him a place to rest. He looks at him in the eyes. Um, he gives him a place to stay. And Jean Valjean, not knowing exactly what to do with that level of dignity, that intensity of grace in the night, decides that he's going to steal the bishop's silver and run away. So he packs it up in his bag. He doesn't make it very far. In the morning, two police officers find him. They ask him, what is this silver? Where did you get this? And Jean Valjean, uh, quickly trying to think on his feet, says, the bishop gave it to me, right? Maybe that'll get him out of it, right? Maybe he won't go back to prison. And so the police officers call his bluff, and they say, well, let's go ask the bishop then. Now, imagine being Jean Valjean. Imagine how your body would start to respond with the stress of knowing that you are going to have to go back and face your crime. How your palms would start to sweat. How your body would start to shake, maybe. How you'd have that pit in your stomach. Have you felt that pit before in your stomach, that sense of looming dread hanging over you? Because not only was he facing the threat of going back to prison and probably never getting out, he also had to look in the eyes of the man who showed him such grace, such compassion, such dignity, but he betrayed him. I think we are a lot like Jean Valjean uh, in many ways. Um, we have all kinds of instances where in relationships, we say something we wish we could take back. Sometimes uh, we do things we regret. We don't want to face the person we've wronged after we've wronged them. Maybe some of you are sitting here this morning and you, you, are, you feel like Jean Valjean. You feel like uh, you're being dragged here into church. You're not sure why you're here. A friend invited you. Maybe you have a sense of tradition and so you came anyway, but there's this looming dread hanging over you, this sense of shame about who you are, about what you've done in your past. Maybe you're even thinking about what you did yesterday. And you're thinking, I don't want to look God in the face. Not today. I think the question, if we are like Jean Valjean and we allow shame to stop us from having a deep relationship with Jesus, the question is, how can we possibly come back to Jesus after we've wronged him? Can we come back to him? Or is shame going to stop us from having depth of relationship with Jesus forever? The story that we're looking at this morning is about a man who comes face to face with someone he wronged. In fact, it's not just a regular old person, he wronged Jesus himself. So my hope for us this morning is that we, like Peter in the story, would have an encounter with the living, risen Christ in the midst of and in spite of our shame. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. 
risen Christ, you are present. You are here. We invite you to lead us and to guide us this morning as we look at this text, that it would not just be an encounter intellectually with some words on a page, that it would not just be some empty knowledge that we heap up. We pray for an encounter with you. Would you meet us here so that we can look at you face to face in your eyes, speak to us this morning, especially speak to us in our shame, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, well, we are in the book of John. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. One of our ushers will be coming down the aisle here. They'd be happy to hand a Bible out to you. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, please keep this one. It's our gift to you. Y también tenemos en español. Si necesita una copia de la Biblia en español, por favor, levanta la mano y diga español. Si no tienes una copia de la Biblia, esto es nuestro regalito a ti. We are in John chapter 21. Um, Go ahead and turn there, or you can follow along on the screen. And uh, just to recap where we've been, we are almost at the end of the book of John. In fact, we're in the very last chapter. We've been going through this book for nearly two years now. Um, feels like longer sometimes. Um, and we are in the very last chapter, and we're going to close out this series next week. Pastor Dave is going to preach the last week of this uh, series. Uh, but it follows, John follows the person of Jesus. And so we have stories of Jesus' encounters with different people, people who are religious, people who are not religious, prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors, and story after story, dialogue after dialogue, and it culminates in the crucifixion, a time when Jesus ironically is lifted up and crowned as king and lord over all, and then three days later they find an empty tomb because Jesus has risen from the dead. He's alive. And then we get three encounters with the risen Christ, and this is the last of those three encounters, but it's a little strange, a little unique, because the other two encounters are in Jerusalem. This one is in Galilee. So it's, it's a little confusing chronologically. I don't know where it fits in chronologically here, but join me, if you would, at verse 1 of chapter 21, and we see what, what happens here. And just so you know, I'm going to run through verses 1 through 14 really fast. So uh, if you're trying to follow along, you might get left behind because I'm going to go super fast. And then we're going to spend the bulk of our time, excuse me, in verses 15 through 19. So verse 1, though, it says this, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. And then it lists who's there. Simon Peter is there. Thomas, the one we just uh, read about last week, he's there. Nathaniel of Cana, the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John. And then two other of his disciples were together. So seven of the 11 original faithful disciples, right, are there, but they're not in Jerusalem. They're back in their hometown. This is where they're from, their home region. Now imagine they're probably wondering, they followed Jesus for three years, where do you go after he dies? What do you do? You go back to where you know. You go back to what you know, right? And here's Simon Peter. It says that he's fishing again. He's a fisherman by trade. His father was probably a fisherman. His grandfather was probably a fisherman. He's going back to what he knows, and he says to the other disciples, let's go fishing. They say, okay, let's go. We're going to go with you. So they get in the boat, and they fish all night, and they don't catch anything. Now, at this point, 
they hear, as the dawn is coming up over the horizon, they hear a voice from the shore that says, hey, did you guys catch anything? <laughs> and you can almost hear the snark in their voice, right? Look, look at what it says. It's just one syllable. No. <laughs> They're not pleased with this question. They're professionals, but this guy over here is coaching them from the sidelines, right? They can't see him. He's kind of shrouded in shadows and mystery. Um, and the guy shouts back, hey, why don't you try one more time? <laughs> All right, sure. Okay, so they throw the nets over the side of the boat, and lo and behold, 153 fish jump into this net, right? They get the biggest catch of their lives. And John and Peter are thinking, this feels this feels really familiar. I feel like I've lived th this exact moment of my life before. Hasn't this happened? And so John is thinking back to when they were on the Sea of Galilee at the beginning, before Jesus had called them to be disciples. You can read about it in Luke 5. It's an interesting story. But what happens is exactly the same thing. Jesus is in the boat. He says, hey, try one more time. After they've been fishing all night, they catch this huge thing. And so John knows instinctively who this man shrouded in, shrouded in shadows is. He knows. And he looks over at Peter with excitement in his eyes and says, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. Peter does not wait. <laughs> he wraps on his outer garment, which is probably his underwear, because they fished naked, apparently. <laughs> Different workplace environment <laughs> in those days. Don't try that one. Um, so he puts on his outer garment and he jumps in the sea and he swims as fast as he can. And I imagine him kind of doggy paddling, not getting there really quickly. And he finally gets to the shore and the rest of the fishermen drag the, the fish, the big catch, onto the shore. And there's Jesus. He's cooking breakfast for everybody. He didn't need the fish. He already had it. He's cooking, it says, over a charcoal fire, which is interesting because there's only one other time that the word charcoal fire is mentioned in all of the New Testament. And it's the moment that Peter is warming himself by a charcoal fire as he denies Jesus three times. So you can imagine the smells of breakfast, the good smells of this roasting bread and fish are mixed in with the smells of traumatic stress. Peter's thinking about it. He's sweating. His heart is pounding. He has this sense of dread. He doesn't want to look Jesus in the eyes. And the question then becomes, what is Jesus going to do? Everybody knows. It's an elephant in the room. Jesus has de been denied by Peter three times. How is Jesus going to deal with this wayward disciple? Is he going to rebuke him? Is he going to put Peter in his place? What would you do if someone wronged you? Would you tell him off? Make sure they knew. Well, the first thing that Jesus does, if we look, skip ahead to verse 15 here, Jesus restores relationship. That's the first thing that he does, okay? Let's read what it says in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, notice here the first thing. Who is initiating this reconciliation? Who shows up? Peter doesn't go looking for Jesus. Jesus just pops up magically on the shore where Peter is fishing, right? He's the one who's reaching out to Peter. He's coming to find Peter. He is pursuing Peter, right? And not only that, but what does he call Peter? 
calls him Simon, son of John. Now, it's interesting because he only calls Peter that one time other than this. One time. And that is, at the, again, at the very beginning when he called Peter to follow him. He calls him Simon, son of John, and he says, from now on, I'm calling you Peter. But for some reason, he goes back to the beginning here. He brings Peter back. It's almost like he's saying, let's go back to where it all started. Let's go back to the beginning, to this beach, to that boat, to that moment. And what does he ask him? He doesn't ask him, hey, what have you done for me lately? Hey, how are you doing with your quiet times, your Bible reading plan? Hey, um, how much volunteering are you doing? How much are you giving? How many disciples do you have now, Peter? He doesn't ask him any of that, right? The question that he asks him is, do you love me? Because it's all about love, and it's always been all about love. In essence, he's saying to Peter, do you remember when we first met? Do you remember where we first met? Do you remember that moment when it all started? Do you remember when you were Simon, son of John? You didn't have a ministry name. Do you remember when I was Jesus of Nazareth? Do you remember when it was all about love? This almost, it reminds me of like a sappy romantic comedy, right? Where they go back to the place of their first date. But somehow that first date was a disaster and then they overcome their troubles and they get together, you know. <laughs> but this is better. <laughs> he says, do you love me? And it seems like Peter's really hesitant in his response. He says, yes, Lord, right? But then he appeals to knowledge first. He says, you know that I love you. It's almost like he's avoiding answering the question. And to further this, what's really interesting is in the Greek, Jesus asks it one way, and Peter responds a different way. Jesus says, do you love me? And he uses the Greek word agape, um, which some would say has this kind of, this content of that word means like unconditional love. Um, That's mixed though. That's Don't don't take my word for it. Look at the commentaries on that one. But he asks it one way. He says, do you agape me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He uses a different word. Why is that? No, is he avoiding answering exactly what Jesus is asking? There must be this sense of being held back by the shame of his denial of Jesus. It's almost like Jesus says, hey, Peter, do you adore me? And Peter's saying, yeah, I, I like you. It's, he's, he's avoiding it. He's avoiding relationship. How about for you? Does shame hold you back from really experiencing the fullness of Jesus' love in your own life? Do you feel like you can't answer Jesus fully right now? This is what Jesus then responds to Peter. He he gives him a command. He says, feed my lambs. Which brings us to our second point here. Jesus restores Peter's purpose. Let's keep reading. He says, feed my lambs. And then Jesus asks him again a second time. And it's exactly, guys, this is word for word. It's almost like he didn't hear Peter's answer. And so he tries asking again. 
That happens to me sometimes. I ask Desiree a question, and then she answers, but I didn't, I didn't hear her response. So then I ask the question again. Um, he asks it exactly the same way. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter answers exactly the same way. Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And then Jesus gives him another command. Tend my sheep. And then a third time, Jesus asks, Simon, son of John, do you, but now he condescends to Peter's level. Do you phileo me? He's bringing it down to language that Peter can use and grasp. He's, again, he's pursuing Peter and coming to Peter where he can meet him, right? The place that he's at. And this grieves Peter. This is the third time. And remember, Peter did not deny Jesus one time or two times. He denied him three times. It's ringing in his ears now as Jesus asks the third time, do you love me? And so once again, Peter appeals to knowledge. He says, you know everything. You knew where we would be. You knew I'd be out fishing. You knew I'd be in Galilee. You knew about this beach. This is the exact beach we met on. You knew that we'd catch 153 fish. You knew where to meet me. And you certainly know my heart. You know what I can bring you, and I can bring you phileo. I love you. I phileo you. So Jesus responds a third time with the command, feed my sheep. Now what's interesting to me is that each time um, Peter says, I love you, Jesus responds with a command. Did you notice that? He says, yes, I love you, and then Jesus responds with command. And it seems to me, so the, the three commands, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, it seems to me that Jesus is saying, in a sense, love mandates action. Love necessitates action. It precedes action. Our world wants to say action mandates love, right? You go to your workplace, if you do the right things, if you work really hard, your boss will appreciate you, your workplace will say, I love this employee, right? Because of what you can do. Our world wants to love us because of what we do, not who we are, right? When you start asking somebody about, uh, you know, themselves, the first thing that people introduce themselves and what they, what they talk about is their job, what they do. We want to live in a world where action mandates love, but Jesus is saying love mandates action. It goes the other way around. Love precedes, but it also necessitates action. And the action that he gives Peter is to tend his sheep, to care for his flock. I imagine that Peter's been avoiding this mission. He's been avoiding this purpose because of shame. He doesn't know if he can do it. He went back to fishing because he doesn't know if he can be a shepherd. But Jesus is inviting him back into a vocation that is not Peter's mission in the world, but Jesus' mission in the world. See, remember back in the Psalms, Psalm 23, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, says, Yahweh, the Lord, is my shepherd, right? Jesus, earlier in this book, says, he is the good shepherd. This is Jesus' job in the world, is caring for his flock. There is a flock that Jesus has that when they hear his voice, the sheep will come into the flock. That's us. That's his people. We are his sheep, and we are in his flock. And there are more outside of this room. There are more 
who have not heard his voice yet. And we need shepherds who will call Jesus' name who, so that they can hear Jesus' voice and they will come into the flock. And Jesus is inviting Peter into that mission, Jesus' overarching mission. Not everybody here is called to be a pastor. Praise God we have pastors. We need under-shepherds. Jesus is the chief shepherd, but we need under-shepherds to care for us. Praise God for that. But the rhythm of Jesus' mission is the same for you, whether you're a pastor or you're a lawyer. Love God, love people. You see that in the text? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. See, Jesus is not only the good shepherd, he's the good lawyer. He's defending the defenseless. He's not only the good shepherd, he's the good shopkeeper. He's welcoming the stranger with the spirit of hospitality. He's not only the good shepherd, he's the good nurse, healing people with his touch. He's not only the good shepherd, he's the good educator giving wisdom generously to all who ask and seek. He's the good supply chain manager <laughs> holding up and sustaining every inch, every minute balance in his creation. He might not be calling you to be a pastor like Peter, but he is inviting you into his mission and his work in your vocation, in your office, calling you to love God and love people. Jesus restores purpose to Peter. And third, Jesus restores hope. He restores hope. Let's read verses 18 and 19. It says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, so Jesus is continuing. This is Jesus' voice here. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Let's get the obvious out of the way here. I just told you that Jesus restores hope. And then we read a verse about how Jesus just told Peter he was going to die. Okay. How is that hope? That doesn't seem like hope. That seems terrible. Let's rewind to John chapter 13, verses 36 through 38. It's not on the screen, but you can listen here along. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? This is before Jesus went to the cross. Where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but afterward you will follow me. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Before the denial, Simon Peter was a very zealous, passionate man, right? This is the same man who not only in this text says, I'll lay down my life for you. I'm ride or die for you, Jesus, right? He also, when Jesus was arrested, pulled out a sword and chopped off a dude's ear, right? This guy is all out for Jesus. And yet, he promised Jesus, he told Jesus that he would lay down his life for him, but he couldn't even, he couldn't even keep Jesus' name in his mouth 
when he was pressed by a little girl asking him around that charcoal fire. And I bet if I were Peter, I would be wondering, Jesus, this is good. I love you. I'll feed your sheep. But what happens if I'm pressed again? What happens if I fail again? Will I deny you again, Jesus? I don't know if I can take that. And maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, in your sin and in your shame, you feel caged in by the fear of a future where you fail. You can't do it, and you don't even want to try. Jesus is telling Peter that in the end, in his last moment, in his finest hour, when he's pressed, he will not give in. This time, it's not going to be a little girl around a charcoal fire. It's going to be soldiers. This time, he's not going to look away. He's not going to run away. He's going to face it. This time, Jesus is going to be with him, and he's going to become like Jesus. In the end, Peter is going to be so firm in his faith that just like the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, he'll lay down his life. I'd guess that while there would be certainly a sense of dread about the reality of the death that's awaiting him, the actual events that are going to come, that there would be an incredible sense of confidence knowing that he's going to stand firm until the end. Jesus gave him an assurance, not of comfort, not of pleasure, not of happiness, not of an easy life, but he gave him an assurance that he's going to remain faithful until the end. And in that, the text says, Peter would glorify God. He'd bring honor to the name that he despised. But we, like Peter, need some hope in the day-to-day. We need some hope here. We need some hope now in what we're doing in our day-to-day lives. And so Jesus finishes this section after saying all of this with two simple words, a simple invitation, follow me. Your job, folks, my job, our job as followers of Jesus is simple obedience. Today, are you faithful today? Love Jesus, love people, follow him where he goes. And sometimes following Jesus is going to yield suffering, right? Because we're following him as he walks into the places of suffering and pain. Sometimes following Jesus is going to yield humiliation because we're following him into the places where he's mocked and humiliated. Sometimes, for some in our world, following Jesus is going to yield death because for many, calling on the name of Jesus is a crime punishable by death and they're following Jesus into his death. Sometimes it yields suffering, sometimes it yields pain. But listen to this. All of the time, following Jesus yields hope. Sometimes it yields pain, sometimes it yields suffering, but all of the time, following Jesus yields hope. Because we are following a man risen from the dead. We are following him into a resurrection life, a new life. And in fact, we're following him into a new creation that is yet to come. 
It might lead to pain and suffering now, but it always yields hope. Your job, folks, is to follow him. Follow him today. We left Jean Valjean (laughs) back in the woods being led with his hands shackled back to the place uh, where he stole the silver and he gets back to the home of the bishop. And I imagine that he's thinking, this is it. This is it. My second chance is blown. My time has come. I'm going back to prison. Never getting out. And so the police officers, thinking that they're, you know, calling out uh, the lie here, say to the bishop, this man, <laughs> get this, he says that you gave him this silver. And the bishop looks at the police officers and says, oh, yes, I did give him this silver. And in fact, son, you left in such a hurry that you forgot the two best pieces. And he goes to his cabinet and he opens it up and he pulls down the prizes of his collection, two silver candlesticks, and he puts them in Jean Valjean's back. And for the rest of Valjean's life, he is completely changed and transformed by not one but two radical encounters with grace. He received grace first, and he stabbed him in the back and walked off. And now he receives a second helping of grace that's so radical that it completely shapes the trajectory of his life. He gives his life to Jesus shortly after that. And then he dedicates his life to serving the poor and the destitute. And for the rest of his life, he serves people. I like to imagine those two candlesticks as the candlestick of hope and the candlestick of purpose being put in his bag. Valjean found freedom from his shame in this radical encounter with God's grace. Do you feel locked in today by shame? Do you feel like there's no way out because of the thoughts that run through your head, because of what you said to someone, because of what you've done, because of your past, because of your sin? Do you feel aimless? Do you feel hopeless? Do you feel like it might be too late to come back to Jesus? The radical encounter with grace freed Valjean to live a life with new meaning on a new mission, just like the encounter that Peter had with Jesus' radical grace freed him to live with new meaning on a new mission. And I wonder, are you willing to have a radical encounter with Jesus this morning that you might live with new meaning and on a new mission? Let's pray. Jesus, don't wait for us to come to you. We ask that you would come to us first. Initiate with us, initiate with our hearts, pursue us. We are thankful that you are the God who pursues. Because if it were up to us, we would probably run away and hide. (laughs) We know that you're here now, King Jesus. We know that you're risen, that you're reigning and ruling over all of creation and that you want us to not delay any longer, but to look at you in the eyes and to freely receive the grace that you've given. I pray that we would be freed in this room from the shackles of shame today.
Give us hope and a purpose. Give us a new meaning and a new mission for our life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you do this. Thank you that you're in the business of healing and mending hearts and freeing us from shame. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.